Welcome to part two of my interview with Dr. Boyd Cathy. Today we will be discussing the Southern Poverty Law Center, classic Hollywood, and having hope for the future. Chapter eight, you talk about, <laughs> this is, I thought this was fascinating, but the Southern Poverty Law Center, and you did a, a very extensive, I was actually surprised how extensive, search into Morris D and his organization and who he is. And this got you more or less blacklisted from publishing in certain sources, you, you say in the book. So I was hoping you Yeah, could... this is about 15 years ago, <clears throat> excuse me, about 15 years ago, I was commissioned to do a research study uh, on Morris D's and his group called the Southern Poverty Law Center. And my decision to do it, it's, it's a long study, heavily footnoted, I decided to use uh, only sources that were, you might call, on the left, if you will. In other words, I used uh, magazines like The Progressive, um, Harper's. Um, there were a series of about 15 or 16 articles, investigative articles written by newspaper reporters, the Montgomery Advertiser, which is not a right-wing newspaper by any means. But anyway, these were investigative articles about the operation. And uh, what I found was that the operation of the Southern Poverty Law Center was a, was a money machine. In other words, they would rake in millions and millions of dollars. In fact, I think they sit now on what, a couple of hundred million dollars. And the, the work they did to support uh, uh, efforts at social justice, et cetera, were very minuscule. Increasingly, they became a what they an anti-hate machine. They would label anybody that they did not like, and usually this was people who were conservative, who did not share their socially liberal and left-wing views. They would find a label for them, call them racist or a Nazi or a fascist or a Holocaust denier or whatever. Anyway, when I wrote the article, it came out and um, it was picked up by a number of different groups. Uh, uh, Sam Francis, the late Dr. Sam Francis had 100,000 copies made. It was published uh, by a magazine called Culture Wars. Um, and what happened was uh, because the article had had such a, a uh, an effect, it, bege it began to cause different uh, organizations that had been using some of Morris Dees' information, his publications, to cancel subscriptions, and he began to lose business. And he, in turn, attacked me as a hate monger, uh, neo-Confederate, right-wing extremist, all these different things. And uh, I, <laughs> it did hurt. I mean, obviously, uh, at that time, uh, it 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 was a you know a very difficult uh, cross to bear. But it was fascinating. I think I may have recounted. In, a, in an update article that I did, which I also included in the book, that what happened after that was there's a group called Skinheads of America, and they complained that I was on Morris Dees' list of 40 yeah. men to watch. <laughs> and they said, Dr. Kathy doesn't deserve to be on that list. He's not done anything hateful. <laughs> I thought that was funny. In other I, words, I did not merit, I hadn't done anything really hateful to be on that list of hate mongers. But uh, in recent years, uh, the Southern Poverty Law Center, the SBLC, has, has extended its reach and begun to tack even more moderate and centrist uh, conservative types. And I think they've lost a lot of stature that they 
they they they once had, they're still cited uh, by some of the the mainstream media. But um, it was for me, it was kind of like crossing the Rubicon, if you will, because uh, once you get through that kind of critique and the the kind of opprobrium that was cast on me, you know, I, it, in a sense, it was liberating. Um, I got through it. I didn't lose any friends. My supervisor, uh, the deputy secretary at the Department of Cultural Resources where I work, came to me and told me that he had faith and confidence in me that that I had done my work for for 30 years. That that you know he had never seen anything like what they were talking about. Uh, he was interviewed by the local newspaper because they were interested, and he said, "Dr. Kathy does his work. What he does on the outside is his business, but I've never seen anything like what." The SBLC describes, uh, you know, he's a, you know, he's a he's a team player at, at at work. He does his job, and I've never seen this kind of hate mongering that you describe. So, I got through it. I didn't lose any friends. Um, I did understand that very likely, if I ever wanted to go back to academia to teach, that wouldn't be a possibility because of those headlines. Uh, but um, well, you are brave. It's not an. Ex- Go ahead. I'm sorry. No, you're brave. I, I just, you know, I'm looking at this and um, just the extent to which you researched. I mean, it's, I would get the book just for that one essay. It's uh, it's excellent. I mean, talk about a takedown of the Southern Poverty Law Center. Um, and, and of course, they're the organization now, since you've published this, that are, they're going after Christian ministries. I think uh, uh, Family Research Council was on their list and, you know, Organizations. They have. They, they've, yeah. yeah, they've they've attacked a number of different groups, and they've even inspired certain uh, people on the far left to violence. Yeah. Um, uh, the problem now, well, the problem then was their research was shoddy. Uh, I had a friend, an academic, uh, tell me. He said, "Boy, you should write them and give them the the right information uh, about you." And I said, well, that would give them too much credit. <laughs> but they did this little bio, and they had me seeing all these di- – well, for instance, they had me uh, studying with Andrew Lytle, the great Southern professor who I think taught at Yale for a while. And it was – you know, they, they got it incorrect. It was Russell Kirk, not Andrew Lytle. Uh, um, they, they had other, you know, different things that were wrong. So with all the money they're pulling in, they can't even do a good research hit piece on you. No, I, I should have done the re- rewritten the, the, the hate piece and sent it to him and said, if you're going to attack me, at least attack <laughs> me for the right things. Yeah. Um, oh, man. Well, I, I thought that... It's not, it's, not fun to, it's not fun to go through these things, but, you know, uh, you either run and hide or you defend yourself, and yeah. I decided I was going to defend myself. Um, and as I say, I, I did not lose any friend because of it. Most of your essays in here are about defending monuments, uh, the history of the Confederacy of North Carolina in particular. You talk about uh, figures of North Carolina and Confederate history and essays about them. You have books and movies. So, I mean, there's so we can't cover it all, obviously. Um, But you have been involved in some of the Confederate veterans for how many years now? Uh, About 35 years. 35, 36, maybe, let's see, 1982, thereabouts. So you, you've seen, I mean, the, this whole, you, you sort of came into it right when the attacks were starting, uh, the modern form of them at least. And so you are, 
in a perfect position to view this whole anti-monument debacle, anti-flag debacle, and, and see it from a kind of a bird's eye view. Um, why don't you tell our listeners a little bit about that? I mean, you don't have to go into great detail, but what's changed from when you first got into this in the early 80s to now with the tone? Well, I can give you two examples, kind of impressionistic examples from, from television. Uh, in the mid-1980s, there were two uh, crime mystery programs, uh, sort of. One was Murder, She Wrote. The other was Matlock. And I, I enjoy watching both of them. And Matlock takes place in Atlanta, Georgia. And in the courtroom, there is a, a Georgia state flag, always. And at that time, the Georgia state flag combined uh, the symbol of Georgia, I think it's the, uh, the seal of the state, with the Confederate battle flag. So that is present in every episode. In Murder, She Wrote, some of the early episodes, she travels to Virginia and Texas. And in Virginia, uh, I remember one particular episode, uh, there's a giant portrait of Robert E. Lee behind the judge, uh, and then maybe Jackson and Jefferson Davis or some other, and then there's the Virginia flag and the, the Confederate battle flag. And this is in the 1980s. Wow. Okay, these are on, these are on prominent primetime I think both of them may have been on CBS. Uh, I know Murder, She Wrote was. It lasted on into the 1990s um, with Angela Lansbury, who, by the way, I've been in correspondence with. <laughs> I collect autographs. But anyway. Uh, it, <laughs> That's an interesting story in and of itself, I'm sure. <laughs> I collect autographs from all sorts of people. I've even got one from Clint Eastwood. But anyway, that's a long story. Uh, what, what's fascinating is that in that period, at least, you, these these particular symbols were not seen like they are seen today. And as I tell people, I've not changed my view. I mean, I, I always understood that those symbols were to some degree controversial for some people, but they were accepted as part of our national history. Not everything that everybody mm-hmm. believes is going to be the same. Not every symbol that, that we see is going to be accepted and received in the same form or fashion. I might see a monument to uh, John Brown, uh, you know, for example, and I might say, well, I'm not exactly a fan of John Brown and the abolitionist, uh, but that's part of our history. Um, by the same token, uh, over at the campus of the University of North Carolina, uh, the most heated debates right now are over the monument to what is called Silent Sam, a monument to the University of North Carolina students who fought for the Confederacy. It's a veterans monument, okay? There's a Vietnam veterans monument on the Capitol Square. I'm sure there are people, a lot of people, who oppose the Vietnam War, but I don't see them going over, at least not yet, that may happen, but I don't see it happening yet, going over to the veterans monument and saying, uh, well, we should take that monument down because Vietnam was a disgrace. It was an imperialist war. Uh, white oppressors, colonialists, were part of, of Asia. All of these monuments represent our history, the good, the bad, and the ugly, again, to quote Ben Eastwood. <laughs> and so what I have been concerned about is a 
frenzied ideological attack upon our history, the symbols of our history. And that has taken the most prominent uh, place, if you will, in the attacks on Confederate monuments. Um, and I, I, I've, I've often said that that's just the first step, because you've also got attacks on monuments to Christopher Columbus, to Junipero Serra in California, the Franciscan who, or I think he may have been a Capuchin, the Franciscan who helped settle the missions in California. You've got attacks on George Washington uh, because either they were slaveholders or because they were they were white or because they were sexist or whatever. The problem is that we, by destroying these monuments, by a, by expelling them from their places, from hiding them away, we we narrow our historical knowledge. We 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 skew it. We pervert it. This these symbols, even if we do not share exactly what some of the people who are honored by them represent, rep- they do continue to to offer us perspective on our history, a variety, a broadness of our history, and to try to do away with them is to to pervert that history. It is ideological. And the more we read of it, the more we understand that the movement, we understand that it is a madness, if you will, a lunacy that will not stop until it has perverted the very idea of what America is all about. Yeah, and when you and say – to do that, you, you have, To do that, you have to really rewrite the history. You have to completely undo the history. And when you say lunacy, and, the, the image that came to my head was – the young man at Silent Sam, when they finally did rip it down, he's kicking the statue with shouting, angry face, you know, red, hot anger. And uh, and I think you captured it well with that word. I mean, there's something about that that just says you're not thinking correctly here. This is a statue and you're, you know, going to town. You're probably hurting your foot <laughs> kicking this. But the, well, the there, hatred... there, there was an interview recently with a lady, uh, a, a girl or lady, whatever, uh, who's a student there, and she said, I can't sleep, I can't eat, I can't even take my exams (laughs) because this statue threatens me. That's amazing. And and I I thought about that. How does a statue threaten this person? Obviously not physically, but for what she has been told and taught and come to believe uh, are – things that this statue represents in other words slavery right and the the problem is there's no contextualization there's no understanding of the historicity involved here there's no desire if you will on the part of the professors of these poor students to give them a broader range of understanding i mean i you can go to any country in europe or in the United States, you can find statues. Let me give you another example. Uh, when the communists took over Russia, uh, they named, renamed a bunch of cities and streets, but they also left up statues to Peter the Great and to some of their national heroes because they understood that they, they could perhaps try to contextualize what was going on. Uh, there are statues that remain now in different countries that, that perhaps we might not like what they symbolize. 
as I as I said, I might not particularly care for a statue to John Brown or maybe some other national figure, but it is part of my history, hmm. and it is incumbent upon me to understand that history, to erase it, to expel it, to expunge it, to exile it, narrows my historical my historical focus. It narrows my knowledge. Ideologically, it turns me into a a person who lacks perspective. And in the end, by destroying my history, I destroy my nation. You talk a little bit um, in here about movies and uh books and things that you like and you had a whole uh, chapter very in-depth on uh, Randolph Scott which I thought you know I'm, I'm young well compared to some people right I'm 29 um, Randolph Scott was long gone before I came around but um, I watched some old westerns in fact even last night I was watching uh, Red River jump with John Wayne I'm sure you've seen that mm -hmm. uh, as I was grading some papers I, I was I turned that on and there is something about some of these old classic western films that uh, encourages the soul and it gets us to think about ideals that are beyond us and I just don't see that with modern m movies and cinema and, and all the rest of it um, and so you you actually have a couple chapters in here um, on different movies uh, surveying them you even have one on pro-southern films a lot of them I have not seen do you watch these often or, or I mean have you just over time did, did you kind of collect these because I know you're kind of a movie collector right yeah, I I have to admit I got started with my father years ago <clears throat> when I was probably 10 or 12, probably. Um, we would go into town on a Saturday sometimes and go to the old Ambassador Theater in Raleigh, which no longer stands. And my mother and sister would go shopping or whatever women do. <laughs> and Dad and I would go see a Western or double feature sometimes. And I can recall vividly going to see a, a movie with Randolph Scott and Joel McRae, two of my favorite actors, Ride the High Country. And in reflecting back over it in recent years, I, I, Sam Peckinpah directed the movie. He directed a number of others, but arguably this, this Ride the High Country may be his best. It's also his deepest and most philosophical because it, it talks about the the change in America, uh, in particular <clears throat> on the frontier, but it is emblematic of the change that was going on in the United States. These two old cowpokes both seen their better days. One was an ex-marshal, and they're commissioned to go up and, and pick up some gold at this little mining community. And Randolph Scott decides, well, maybe I could just take this gold myself, you know, and tries to convince Joel McRae to go along with him, and Joel McRae says, nope. And then Scott turns to him and says, well, what goal? If you're not going to, what, what kind of objective do you have in life? Don't you want to be rich? And Joel McRae turns to him and says, my goal, all I want to do is enter my house justified. Hmm. And that's the, the motto of the movie, doing one's duty before God before the nation, before his family. And as they ride down, of course, they're beset by some, some robbers. 
Um, Scott has gone on the lamb because he, he tried to take the gold. He wasn't, wasn't successful. McRae is beset by these bandits, and Scott hears of it, and he runs up to join him in the battle. And Is this a spoiler says, alert? Is this, is this going to give away the movie? <laughs> uh, not completely. Okay, all right, all right. <laughs> Uh, uh, but anyway, uh, he says, partner, I'm back. And, and McRae says to him, heck, I always knew you were. I always knew you were going to come back. And then he says, partner, let's meet them like we did in the good old days. So they go out and meet them, et cetera, et cetera. Anyway, I, I kept thinking about that, and I kept thinking about these themes. There, there's a there's a, a, a number of themes that John Ford, who was in love with the idea the old idea of America and did some wonderful movies. Uh, he, John Wayne was one of his primary actors. Oh yeah. But one of the movies he, he, he directed again, a Western called wagon master didn't have a major star. It had a little hair, Harry Carey and Ben Johnson, who, who Ben Johnson, of course, did make it later as a award winner, but it's a story of a group of Christian pilgrims. Pro- probably, they may have been Mormons, but it's not identified, and they're looking for the promised land. And they guide them to this valley, this promised valley. And the movie is just completely infused with this whole idea of the search for the promised land, for, for God's blessing. And it, it's again, it's emblematic and symbolic of John Ford's idea of what America is all about, the ideals of honesty, of hard work. And in particular, above all, family. Family annealed in the grace of the good Lord, which these people are. The movie came out about 1950, and again, it is a wonderful symbol of what a lot of these old Westerns emphasize. That is, good over evil. Conquering the frontier is what is conquering oneself and those passions that beset us. And you see this in a number of the great actors. Wayne, uh, of course, exemplifies it in a number of his movies. You look at something like The Searchers, where he's the lonely man Wonderful off on movie. the quest. And the quest is not just for his nieces, but for himself, for finding himself. He's taken an oath to Confederacy, and he says at the first, I'm not going to take any more oaths. I took an oath to God and the Confederacy. That's it. Yeah. Um, Randolph Scott who throughout his history, my, my, my dad knew the Scott family. They were in Charlotte, and when Randolph Scott died, I did an article, an essay, an appreciation for him that somehow managed to find its way to his wife, Patricia Stillman Scott, and we became good friends until her death. We exchanged numerous letters and photographs of our pets. She was a cat person. I was a dog person. We would exchange. <laughs> and she recounted to me a story uh, she lived out at Indian Springs, which Randolph Scott had purchased this land out in the desert that, fortunately for him, had oil on it. Wow. Made him into a, made him into a millionaire. And she told me one night, she'd call me up, and, of course, four hours different, so sometimes she'd get her t- times mixed up. And she said, boy, I got a – my real estate guy told me that – I'm going to name the, the, the star. This Hollywood star wanted to buy our home up on Copley Place in Beverly Hills. She said, I don't live there much. And she said, you know, Randy, Randy Scott, we spent $700,000 in 1947 to build that house. 
and it's worth millions today. And that that woman, she offered me thirteen million, <laughs> and I told her I'm not letting that whore live in the house that Randolph Scott and I lived oh, in. Oh wow! <laughs> <laughs> uh, it, it you know, it and it's 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 fascinating. It's fascinating. Um, to see this because it is part of the change in America. It is it, it, in microcosm the the Western is a kind of it's the only real genre in, in movies that that Americans have produced uh, independently of anybody else, and it represents the um, well. There's there's a there's a great example: the man who shot Liberty Valance, mm-hmm. John Ford's Western, with both Jimmy Stewart and uh, John Wayne, and in the end, when Jimmy Stewart recounts the story, that his fame is all based on a myth, hmm. that he's not the man who shot the famous outlaw. It was actually John Wayne. Yeah. And the news reporters are there because he's a U.S. senator and he's yeah. you know famous now, and basically he tells them, my 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 life is based on this story. It's a myth. Yeah. And the Western man looks at him and says, "Sir, this is the West." <laughs> When fiction becomes fact, print the fiction. Or is it, is it when the legend becomes fact? I think it says print the legend. Legend becomes yeah. fact, yeah. When legend becomes fact, print the legend. And of course, Lee Marvin and right, it is, was the, it, the outlaw, one of his best outlaw roles in that movie. Yeah. Oh, yeah, Lee Marvin, yeah, played, played Liberty Valance That's right. in that movie. Uh, but, again, it's the idea that the myths that we live on, the reality of them motivates us. And it's the realities of our beliefs, our families, the land we love, which is the title of this book. That's right. Um, and it's it's all part of what who make who makes us, what makes us who we are, remembering who we are. And we lose that memory, we lose that hope. Then what are we? That's right. Um, there's there's a phrase in the book that I quote from my dissertation topic in Spain and he said I have I, I've seen I've seen people but I've never seen a man who did not have a family who did not have a piece of land who did not have a job who did not have a community and a place a nationality a language if you've got such a man then he is going to be mm-hmm. subject to the first demagogue and dictator who comes around wow T.S. Eliot if you will not have God, and he's a very jealous God, then you must pay your respects to Mr. Hitler and Mr. Stalin. And that's where we're headed. I want to kind of wind down uh, this discussion with a couple. Uh, you have two essays, actually, in here. One is on uh, what's right around the corner, which is Christmas, and you're uh, Vigil of the Nativity and re- Reflections on the Hope that Came to Us. And then you close the whole entire book with Reflections on the Future. All the Hollywood movies, all the ideological instruction in our colleges and schools, all the political posturing by on-the-make spineless politicians will not in the end stand against he who created us. And you talk about having faith in divine providence I'm going to pick your brain a little bit on this. I know you're Roman Catholic. It's interesting to me when I was reading some of this, uh, you don't talk about having faith in the Roman Catholic Church, which I, I thought you might talk about that, but you talk about having faith in Christ 
and in God. And I was hoping maybe you could flesh out for us, what does that faith look like? Because we need hope right now. We are all given gift, a gift or gifts by God. We are offered the gift of grace. And what we do with it, of course, determines how our lives are lived and what accomplishments we may make in this life. And I think what is important to remember, you know, yes, I am, I am Catholic, but having been born in, and lived in the South and with a number of Protestant ancestors whom I greatly respect and have absorbed much from them, I also have a deep appreciation for the traditions that I've inherited, which are not Catholic. The last phrase in the book, the, 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 I use the, the Spanish writer Miguel de Unamuno's phrase that memory, which we have, gives us hope. But when hope fades, then memory arises again. We remember our past. That, in turn, gives us hope. And even when hope fades anew, the memory will arise, and that memory will give us hope again. There is, to again quote, quote Elliot, there is no lost cause because there's no actual gain cause. We have the master of the universe himself who promised us. He did not promise us we would exceed, succeed here below that we would reestablish the city of God on earth necessarily. We might. But history is, is strange. It plays tricks on us. Our particular position, our particular role, is each one in his own sphere, in his own life, with his family, with his friends, with whatever he does, with the gift that he has been given, is to do our duty, nothing less, to do our duty, whatever that duty may be, to make, yes, make this life better, but also to ensure that the next generation and the generation beyond that have the wherewithal and the ability to continue to receive those gifts, because in the end, we know that God will triumph. Sick of being upsold at gyms? My guy, you're currently a base member. For $90 more, I can upgrade you to our Shred membership. For $130 more, you'll be a swole member. And for just $300 more, you'll reach Sweat Platinum. At Planet Fitness, you'll get energy without the upsell. Never pushy, always free fitness training and equipment for every workout. It's fitness that fits your budget. Join Planet Fitness for just $1 down and $10 a month. Cancel anytime. Deal ends Friday, May 10th. See Home Club for details.